0: We take an owner's mentality to an an investment process. We're looking at the long-term ownership of businesses that we could buy outright if we wanted to.
1: Welcome to Distinctively Active Investing, Profiles and Perspectives, presented by Touchstone Investments. I'm Blake Moore, President and Chief Executive Officer of Touchstone. On this show, you'll find out what makes Touchstone and its portfolio managers, distinctive. We share in-depth interviews with people who are actively engaged in leading and managing the Touchstone Funds, and you will hear from other industry professionals as well.
2: Hi, I'm Tim Bray, Divisional Vice President here at Touchstone Investments. Today we're talking with Steve Goddard and Brian Campbell of The London Company, Steve is the founder of the London Company and heads the firm's investment and management teams. Steve and Brian are portfolio managers of the Touchstone Mid-Cap Fund, as well as the Touchstone Large-Cap Fund and the Touchstone Small-Cap Fund. The London Company serves as a subadvisor to the funds. They'll be discussing the London Company's investment strategy, as well as their personal backgrounds and career trajectories. First, we'll hear from Steve and then Brian about how they got into the investment business.
3: Back in college, I was uh, part of the student investment club before there were student investment clubs. We decided to start a, uh, a small investment club with five, or six students and with our own capital. And that was back in their early 80s when the markets were not a popular place to be. And when I got out of school, I had a taste of that, but I was working for an accounting firm and going for my CPA. And I found myself on my off hours, tend to gravitating towards uh, looking at value lines and investment reports and just as a hobby. And the more I did it, the more I realized that if I enjoy doing this so much, I should go into it for a profession. So I dropped the accounting route and started as a sell-side analyst for a small regional firm. And from there, it just moved step by step, and finally got on the buy side. Five years later, it evolved from there. The buy side. I was working for a bank, regional bank in Virginia, and we had responsibility for certain sectors. So I was uh, given my background with financial services. I was given the banks, which at that time were not very popular with with the investment community. I was following 10 to 15 different uh, financial service firms. I always had, ever since I got out of college, my my ultimate goal was to start an investment firm. And it took me 15, 16 years to get to that point. But, um, you know, I waited for the right opportunity. And that came along in 1994 when the insurance company gave me the flexibility to bring in other accounts. And being as risk averse as I, I am, that was the perfect opportunity for me because I had the first colony. I mean, the uh, insurance company for my main account, and, but didn't have all the startup risk that you normally would have.
2: Steve, do you remember your first investment?
3: The first one taught me a, a very good lesson because I, I bought a, it was, back then it was a startup airline, no, no Thrills Airline called People's Express. And it was employee, employee owned. It didn't, it didn't work out. So they taught me in the beginning what not what not to buy, and I think my second investment was Nike, which was at that time was a startup shoe company. And there have been a lot of casualties in that industry prior to, prior to that, with uh, the Reeboks and uh, Stride Right other companies. But that were, what really got me into uh, focusing on high return on capital franchises with high margin. and from then on I was sold on, on that on that process.
0: Well, similar to Steve, I uh, I was exposed to this business my second half of undergrad. I think it was late junior year. The Tennessee Valley Authority, a you know, large government-backed entity, offered I think eight of the SEC schools, the Southeastern Conference schools, some capital to start a student-managed investment fund. And this is late '90s, probably '97, '98, and uh, each university picked. What they thought you know six finance students that would be interested in doing this, and of course, I was you know raising my hand immediately and kind of get exposed early to to what this really was about, and you kind of you know go through the whole process, you know looking at industries and companies and vetting them and valuing them and and this is this is all green to me i I had no idea any of this world really existed, and I really became fascinated by it, and it it was definitely a calling that okay, this is what I wanna do for my career, you know, previously, you know, majoring in finance and business and thinking about law school was never what I wanted to do. And when I discovered this, uh, it was a good personality match for me. And so I spent, you know, the first couple of years post-graduation knocking on a lot of doors and trying to get in. I was often the bridesmaid. They, they, they usually hired the, you know, the guy with six years of experience in a MBA, but I did, I did get my foot in the door a couple of years later. You know, in the meantime, I worked as an analyst for a casino, uh, which is actually interesting in its own right and, and a lot of valuable experience. But uh, there was a firm in Louisville, Kentucky, where I'm from, uh, that took a chance and hired me as an equity analyst, despite not having my MBA yet. I think I was the first one there to join without that. But uh, that was my that was my entry. And, and I joined right at the peak of the NASDAQ, March 2000, which is also an interesting Time to start a career in this business, and it really got my feet wet. Uh, the First couple of years of my career there, I, I really am a strong believer. The first couple of years of your of your career mark and and sort of create a path on how you think and behave, and that really molded me throughout my career. And that learning experience of of watching businesses con- to continue to, to depreciate was long lasting in my mind. And so you focus on. Companies that you feel have their own control over their destiny. And, uh, there was a lot of lessons learned and a lot of industries that were being disrupted and, and valuations that were just absurd at the beginning of that, that point in 2000. So, uh, those, those lessons carried with me for a long time and, and, uh, really, you know, led me 10 years ago to join the London Company. I spent seven years at a firm. Post uh, grad school, uh, I did in, the, in the, between my first job as an analyst at, at National Asset Management, which was later bought by Invesco, and then my previous iteration at Hilliard Lyons Asset Management uh, post graduate school. I was managing mid cap and large cap strategies and incubated a mid cap fund in 2004 in a very similar approach, focusing on long term ownership of highly profitable companies with great returns on capital and with management teams that you found had the integrity and aptitude to really create great wealth with the long-term ownership of the businesses. And we had a lot of, you know, potential red flags and other sort of uh, hindrances to really grow that business uh, being owned at one point by, a you know broker dealer and by a large bank. At one point we were owned by PNC Bank. There were a lot of the institutional consultants and intermediaries that just did not want to to work with you. You you, you really wanted to find boutique managers that were independently owned, employee owned. And and so even though we had good people, good performance, good process, we really couldn't grow our business in a meaningful way. And and I had been keeping my ears open for other opportunities. And it was probably mid 2010. And it was pretty serendipitous. I got a phone call from a a recruiter about a job in in Richmond, Virginia. And I had just taken the family on our first vacation to the Outer Banks, which is in in North Carolina. And we were driving through Virginia two weeks prior and stopped in Charlottesville and, and made some comments like, this is Really beautiful state. This is, this is pretty nice, and I got that call two weeks later, and I was like, "Well, that's kind of random." I was just in Virginia and drove through Richmond and, and drove through Charlottesville, and once I learned about the opportunity and learned the philosophy, it checked a lot of the boxes. It it, it was oh, yeah, I'm doing that. I think that way. I think I think that's actually very very interesting. And at the time, it was Steve and John Moody, and they were experiencing hyper growth hosts. Great financial, you know, the Great Recession in 2008, 2009, and I think needed some help with bandwidth and getting folks on board to, to really carry some weight on the investment side and, and do other other things. So it was a fairly quick process. Fortunately, Steve had some you know shared contacts with people and folks in my history. I actually shared the same third party marketing firm. Uh, and so was able to vet me, I think, fairly quickly, and then uh, joined September 2010, uh, almost almost ten years ago
2: now. Brian, for those people that are not familiar with the London Company, can you tell us about the firm's approach to investing? Sure. You know we
0: we take a an owner's mentality to an, an investment process. We're looking at the long term ownership of businesses that we could buy outright if if we if we wanted to. Uh, you know, We think managing money, there's a couple core beliefs that make the lending company a little bit different. First, we feel the market is less efficient at assessing the risk side of the equation versus the reward. And we spend a good portion of our time, if not most of our time, looking at what could go wrong or for what could go right. So when you take an owner's mentality and you find businesses that you think are trading at substantial discounts, That risk component is the focus of our process. Uh, We do everything in our power to try to mitigate mistakes. We really do spend the entire process, discussions, trying to get that equation right. And I think that's a little bit different than other firms that are looking to be right, where we're looking not to be wrong, more or less. So when you take that risk approach and then you filter it through the companies that fit what we're looking for and how we get there, it's really focusing on things that we can control. You know, companies that have very strong balance sheets that don't need to access capital markets in times of stress. Companies that generate good cash flow, that have high re- re- returns on capital, and incrementally improving returns on capital. We think that metric is probably the most important metric of any company because it it really does define the cash return you get from the cash invested and if they're able to generate really good returns and spreads on the capital committed it's implying they have an advantage over their peers that it's not easily duplicated and that you know that return on capital the balance sheet approach and, and the way we get our valuation is really the three key tenets of our process but again with the whole holistic approach of of being different focusing on the long term focusing on not being not being
2: wrong so, Steve, what makes your firm different from its competitors?
3: Well, I think there are two important aspects of our firm that makes, makes it different. One is that we take a, a much more longer-term orientation. So we're looking way beyond. In fact, most of our models are using 10-year forecasts. We try not to speculate on what the growth rate might be. We tend to use very modest growth rates, if any. We're looking more for sustainability of the cash flow. And the balance sheet optimi- optimization process is is very different from what I've seen any other firm use, where we're basing our investment thesis on things that management can control to create value, versus trying to speculate on uh, future growth rates of any any company. So I think those two things are the main edge that we have over our competitors, at least what what makes us different.
0: You know I think when you when you analyze a business, and we're looking at companies in a universe that have historically earned really good returns on capital and, and strong free cash flow, that allows us to have a valuation approach that is different. When you talk to other portfolio managers, analysts, and, and they're describing how they get valuation of the business, more often than not, it's through some discounted cash flow analysis. And if you think about every input and assumption that's made in that analysis, extrapolating error risk each step along the way. And we don't think we're able to outguess anyone else better than the the next person in the street because we can't forecast our own business very well. We have no idea when fund flows are going to come in or what the market's going to do. And we don't think management teams in most companies are, are any better at that either. So forecasting is full of risk, and we try to reduce as much speculation in our process. So I think what makes our process a little bit more unique and novel is that our valuation approach is different. And we actually do a more akin to a private equity valuation where we look, we're looking at the capital structure of the business. And the only assumption we're going to make is, is that capital structure static or could it be adjusted? And what we mean by that is, you know, most firms are funded with with debt and equity and there is an optimal balance depending on your industry, depending on your returns on capital and your cash flow, more firms have historically carried too much equity on on that capital structure versus debt. And we go through a hypothetical process like a private equity investor would and say, could you optimize that balance sheet and lower your cost of capital? Now, the cost of debt is, is historically and will always be cheaper than the cost of equity. Could you increase your debt burden very conservatively You know, no more than 40% debt to cap or four times interest coverage. And if you could, and you could retire your higher cost equity, could you lower that discount rate and thus implying a higher enterprise value for the business? So hypothetically, we go through this model, this balance sheet optimization is what we call it internally. And we're looking for discounts of 30 to 40%. And what we're assuming is, you know, cash flows are flat, revenues are flat. We're not making any assumptions on margins, pretty much status quo very little growth, zero to to less than inflation, could you get a large discount just by adjusting that capital structure? So it's a very, I think, concrete way without forecasting or speculating on what the world's going to do going forward or how much revenue is going to grow or or margins are going to expand. And that's allowed us to really have businesses that hold up well, particularly in times of stress, because when when capital gets constrained, spreads widen out, these companies have this flexibility. And that's really what we're looking for, that flexibility that allows them to, to fund their own projects or withstand a, a bad down market better than their peers. But if you think about our process, every step of the way is designed to reduce risk. And you know we define risk as, as loss of capital, you know, permanent impairment of capital, not just volatility. But if you think about it, and you think about the you know, the return on capital focus, you know, that really is designed to reduce a lot of the inherent business risk. You know, you're focused on companies that are much more stable, uh, much more, have much more visibility in their cash flows. So you take some of the inherent business risk out of the equation immediately. We, we spend an enormous amount of time trying to get the management equation right, the culture of the firm equation right, which is very, very challenging. It's a softer, intangible uh, asset, but it really pays dividends over the long haul. And companies that have superb managers and think like shareholders tend to add the most value over time. And so we spend you know, hours talking to people that have history and knowledge of how the culture is internally. We look at the, the proxy statement and look at incentives and see how, they have the, how the managing pays themselves. We, we find it very, very valuable. How they exercise their own options. Are they buying stock personally with their own, their own capital? So if you get that management equation right, you're reducing some of the company-specific risk. And then our evaluation approach, the balance sheet optimization model, our price risk is reduced because we're not speculating, we're not forecasting on growth or margins. So all that leaves a reduction of risk. And then you get to our risk controls and sell discipline. We actually have a a 1% soft stop loss, a quantitative method that reduces risk when we are wrong and in this business is is very humbling and you're going to be wrong, but we try to mitigate our mistakes. So if we have a position that hits a 1% reduction in its own size by its own merits, meaning if a 3% position trades itself to a two, that triggers a soft stop loss review. We'll, We'll go back, review our thesis. We'll think about what we, we missed. And more importantly, we're not going to compound them that, error by adding to the position. It actually is either a hold or sell. So we don't want to turn a small mistake into a big mistake. And and historically, that's added a lot of value for our process. So each step along the way is a risk reduction step. And what we're trying to do is if you think about a normal distribution curve, mitigate that left tail. And if you can eliminate that second, third standard deviation on the left side, then your median return will be skewed right. And unfortunately, we keep, we're not very good at predicting which ones do best year in, year out. But we know over time, if we don't have the left tail, that our results will be above mean and, and skewed right. Uh, and that's what, what we've proven to do for the last 25 years.
2: So, Brian, how does the London company incorporate ESG into its investment process?
0: Well, it's becoming an ever-increasing factor for all money managers. And for us, we've historically been very in tune with the governance as- aspect of ESG. Uh, the last number of years, we've incorporated the other elements as well. And it really is for us about sustainability. Our approach is the long-term ownership of businesses. And we want our businesses and partner partners to do what's best, not only for the firm, but for their community and environment, to make it as sustainable and long-lasting as possible. We've actually implemented a third-party software, uh, Sustainalytics, that helps evaluate all the ESG categories, scores them. And if there are issues or if there are flags for us to consider, we reach out to the companies and have conversations. Uh, But we think it's it's best practices to think about it from a long term standpoint because that's our that's our hope
2: with the ownership of these businesses. So Steve, what advice would you give to someone getting into the investment business today? I think the key is being patient.
3: Uh, Everyone everyone who wants to get into the business you know, wants to do so right away. And sometimes you've got to take a lot of side steps, career paths that you might indirectly get you there, but it always takes longer than you expect. So you have to be patient and disciplined and also focus on areas that other people are not focusing on. That's hard to do, but you don't want to be one of many using traditional investment vehicles. So, you know, whether it's an asset class, or just a product that's slightly different from other investment vehicles. And if you're willing to be patient and disciplined, the markets will eventually come your way. But just asset classes or a combination of asset classes that maybe somebody else or most of the market participants aren't really focused on. And that's hard to do because it's not gonna be very popular in the beginning by giving an example, when we first started the income equity product, We had a combination of uh, some preferreds in there along with common. And dividends were not popular back in the 80s and 90s. In fact, that was a sign of weakness. And we had a theme of the decade that the dividend was coming. And uh, for years, it didn't materialize. And then, third or fourth year, it did. We were sitting right in the perfect spot to benefit from the popularity of dividend type product. But sometimes you have to stretch and start early. And the product wasn't that much different than other equity income products, but because of those preferreds at the time, and they end up being a very excellent product that
0: took off. I think Steve's being even a little modest there. I mean, it was very contrarian to start a dividend-oriented strategy in 1999. Again, that was the height of the tech bubble, and there weren't you know any investors looking to start a conservative, low-beta dividend-oriented strategy at that time. So. <laughs> I think his comments of being different is, is very true. And if you can find opportunities to exploit when others are not focusing on it, it would be a great, a great decision for, for the firm.
2: So, Brian, why do you think active management matters going forward?
0: I think investors should know what they, what
2: they own and what they
0: invest in. Unfortunately, there's a, a lack of education in, in the larger pocket society where investors generally don't know what they own. And when you are passively invested and you have all the companies in the index, you have 100% of the downside exposure. Active managers offset that. We can control what we own. We can avoid the positions we think are most at risk and position our portfolios and holdings that through the market cycles will hold up better. And I think that's obviously been lost when you go through a nine to 10-year bull market active managers have been ridiculed and passed over because of fee compression and the ease in use of passive indices. But when you go through volatile periods and you go through times where you have significant drawdowns, you hope your, your, your exposure has some active
2: managers in there because those will allow you to, to hold up much better. Brian and Steve, I'd love to hear from each of you. Who is your investment mentor and why? I, I you know, I've, I've been lucky to work with three great investors, you know, and I pick up
0: pieces from from each one. I think you have to really develop your own style and know what works for you. But you know, I mean, I started very young, low, early twenties, and there was a PM at my first firm that was an engineer by trade from from Dartmouth. who was very Methodical, very independent thinking, and that was the one element that I thought was very value additive and different. Just his comment about being one of one, being different, having independent thoughts—he really ingrained that in me. Post business school, I worked with a with a portfolio manager that was incredibly patient, incredibly disciplined. Turnover in the fund was maybe 10 percent, and he kept things very simple. He would, you know, first question of a business, he's like. What makes this business special? And that simplicity, that patience, that discipline was always allowing me to stay within my circle of competence and try to reduce complexity. And when I joined the London company, Steve, you know, Steve Goddard was very influential in looking at incentives, looking at actions, looking at behavior. I've been a big believer in behavioral finance student of people, I think that explains a lot of things that are tough to explain. And early when I started here 10 years ago, you know, looking at what motivates people and how they pay themselves, those those statements and elements drive a lot of value over time and can keep you from making a lot of mistakes.
3: Yeah, like like many bad investors, uh, Warren Buffett uh, are this was going back in their early mid eighties before anybody really knew who who he was. And that kind of came about in a roundabout way in terms of, you know, I noticed even my first five years in the business that high return on capital, free cash flow generation, sustainable businesses were stocks that tend to do much better than the other other stocks I was looking at. And I started, I came about accidentally on Berkshire Hathaway annual reports. And I've been following his principles ever since.
2: Brian and Steve. Would you each give us some book recommendations for investing as well as life in general?
0: Yeah, I think there's different answers for that, depending on the the content of, of the material. You know, from an investment perspective, I found the most value from the behavioral finance guys, you know, Daniel Kahneman, Amos Tversky. His his latest thinking fast and slow was a probably the accumulation of a lot of the stuff that you've read over the years. And really helps to understand people. You know, markets aren't rational. Uh, they're there are people like us that aren't always thinking clearly. So if you understand human behavior and understand why people are rational, it helps explain the greed and fear paradigm that you know you experience in the in the in the bull and bear market. So from an invest perspective, I think that that has been very helpful. There's been other, you know, great books to help understand yourself. I think, you know, to be a great investor to be long-term focused, you really have to understand yourself really well. You have to understand your pain points when you're going to make decisions based on rash decision making versus emotions. And so, there's been different elements and different books I've read in the, over the years that it really helps with that with that side of the equation.
3: Investment wise, Seth Carman, uh Margin of Safety was probably the best book that I could really uh, relate to, because his whole theme was to avoid mistakes more than picking winners and always put very modest assumptions into your valuation analysis being long term. It just really registered with me when I read when I read that book. More recently, Shoe Dog, which is a memoir of Phil Knight of Nike, Chairman Nike. And he was just a very gave a very honest story on how Nike evolved. And I never really realized all the trials and tribulations they went through for at least a decade and the near failures he was, he was very honest about the mistakes they made and you know when you start a firm, everyone thinks it is it just kind of get lucky and things happen. No one really appreciates all the trials and uh, the risk you took and how many failures it took to to get to that point point. and um it's just very refreshing to hear someone so honest give a very independent perspective of how that company evolved into one of the great
2: global brands. Lots of leaders have daily routines to keep them at their best and to stay focused. Do you two have anything like that in your daily routines? I do. You know, I try to, I try to make sure I get some form of
0: exercise in every single day. I think it's, it's for me, it's a way to de-stress. So I've, I've always fit that in throughout the day. You know, one thing I love about this business is it's not routine. It's not mundane. Every day is going to be different. News flow happens all the time and dictates a lot of your your day to day stuff. But I'm more of a night owl. I spend a lot of my time thinking and reading late at night, and it allows me to kind of process and absorb information when markets aren't open and emails aren't flying, and try to think pretty coherently about what our best decisions could be. So post a good run and maybe one glass of bourbon. I do a lot of good thinking uh, later at night.
3: Yeah, I need structure. So I try to write down the the main things I need to do next day. And particularly try to get the things, that uh, the more, more important things or, or tasks that I don't like, I try to get them out of the way first. That keeps me on a pretty uh, disciplined routine daily.
2: What is the most interesting place in the world that each of you has visited? That's a really tough question.
0: Fortunate we've we've traveled to quite a few places. I've actually been to all but two of the states in this country. And when I think about that and I think about all the places I've been and seen, I'm always probably most inspired in, in the places out West that are just so vast and, and provides perspective. And I think the last trip, this was state 47 we marked off last summer was in New Mexico and you know going up to George O'Keefe's ranch north of Santa Fe and just the vastness of the land and the, and the different, you know, you know just the, the whole landscape is so awe inspiring. I, I thought that was just really, really grounding. It gives you perspective and, and puts things in order a little bit. So, you know, that and places like Yellowstone National Park, all the national parks are just so majestic. It's hard to find places that are more interesting than those.
3: Uh, By far, Kenya, uh, we went on an African safari family trip uh, five, six years ago. In addition to just the, the beauty and the amazing wildlife, you also got to see how the tribes, and they basically have nothing but they are very proud people, lead a very simple life, very content. It just puts things in perspective in this you know, rat race you run run through in our you know, American lives. It was very
2: refreshing to see. Thanks to Steve and Brian for sharing their insights today into the London company's investment process, as well as their personal
1: interests and background. Until next time, I'm Tim Bray. Thank you for listening to Distinctively Active Investing. You can find the resources mentioned in the episode and learn all about Touchstone at www.touchstoneinvestments.com slash podcast. If you like the show, please share it with someone you know. We appreciate when you subscribe to the show and take the time to leave us a rating and review. Find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. I'm Blake Moore, and from all of us at Touchstone Investments, Thank you for listening. The companies mentioned in this interview are not held in the Touchstone Midcap Fund. Investment return and principal value of an investment in a fund will fluctuate so that investors' shares, when redeemed, may be worth more or less than their original cost. All investing involves risk. Performance data quoted is past performance, which is no guarantee of future results. The information provided is for general information purposes and is not investment
0: advice. Opinions may change without notice based on economic, market, business, and other conditions. Please consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund carefully before investing. The prospectus and the summary prospectus contain this and other information about the fund. To obtain a prospectus or a summary prospectus, contact your financial professional or download and or request one at touchstoneinvestments.com
1: resources or call Touchstone at 800-638-8194. Please read the prospectus and or summary prospectus carefully before investing.
0: Touchstone
2: Funds are distributed by Touchstone Securities, Inc., a member FINRA and SIPC.